Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my stupendous co-host, Ellen McGurk. <laughs> oh, Alan, hello, 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 and hello, everyone. I want to ask you about your fitness regimen, Alan, because you are fit as a fiddle. Are you a runner? I am a runner. I am a biker. I, you know, I try lots of different stuff. You know, I, I obviously I've been thinking about that a lot my whole life. I've tried to stay fit my entire life, but especially during the pandemic, I got very serious about it. I got an app and I tracked what I was eating to make sure I was eating because I was so anxious during that whole time. And I, I found it incredibly helpful. Do you do anything to track your, your health? Oh, I you know, I try and do something every day. I try and keep track of it. I know, Ellen, I'm, I'm not going to be specific about my age, but I have a birthday coming up pretty soon. Uh, and the older you get, the more you realize how important exercise is to everything else, you know, to keeping your brain healthy, yeah. to keeping your body healthy. It's yeah. not just about longevity. It's making sure that later in life, you can take advantage of it. Enjoy all that wisdom that we've earned. Well, our guest today has founded an incredibly successful company based on the idea that most people do need some incentives to stay healthy. But if you provide those, they respond remarkably well. I, I love this interview, Ellen, because, you know, on the one hand, it seems so obvious. Health insurance should right. be about keeping you healthy. But that's not right. the way it has developed. In many cases, health insurance developed as a kind of risk sorting. Yeah. And insurance companies were trying to get the healthiest people so they reduce their risk and avoid the sickest people to increase their risk. And Adrian Gore, who was our guest today, he founded a company in South Africa called Discovery for a variety of reasons that he talked about, took a very different approach. He said, how can we build incentives into our insurance product to make people healthier? We can affect the outcome. It's the ultimate stakeholder conversation. And his success has landed discovery on our very first Change the World list back in 2015. And something else which we hadn't talked about yet, which I find really compelling, is that he founded this company in South Africa, as you mentioned, in 1992, just as the country was exiting apartheid and becoming democratic. It was an extraordinary time to think about the country and the needs of people who had been so vulnerable for so long. And clearly had an important role in the in framing the product the way it was, because you couldn't redline, you couldn't exclude right. people from your product because they were bad risks. You had to come up with a right. different way to make money. And what Discovery did was say, hey, let's build in incentives that will actually make people healthier. <laughs> Just uh, simple but brilliant. I really, I love it. Today, Discovery's a global company. They're trying to bring their concept to other countries. In the U.S., they partnered with John Hancock. They're also working in China, Europe, Canada, Japan, all across the world, which is why we're really excited to have Adrian Gore with us today. So I want to do a little bit of the origin story because you've built a very different company. I'm not sure many of our listeners will be familiar with what you do and how you do it. But I, I know you were one of the first companies we put on Fortune's Change the World list because yep. you had such an interesting approach to the people you were serving. Can you tell us what it is and how you got there? Well, Discovery is a predominantly life and health insurer. And I, I think our difference is the concept of vitality of incentivizing people to 
live a healthy life and then kind of integrating that into the insurance and offering considerable incentives. But the, I mean, the origin is, is quite kind of bizarre. I mean, just, just to give it to you, we started out in 1992. This was right at the time of Nelson Mandela coming out of prison and the, the move in South Africa from apartheid to democracy. And uh, I kind of started a health insurer. And I think that kind of a mad thing to do at the time, a time of great uncertainty, but a time of opportunity. But the, the, the issue here, I hope I'm not verbose, is that, you know, how do you create a health insurance entity that is sustainable when there are too few doctors, you've got massive levels of disease burden. I mean, South Africa, from an HIV perspective, has all the non-communicable disease and the infectious diseases. And then the government, I think rightly so, had an obsession with no discriminations, a kind of Obamacare, you know, no pre-existing conditions can be taken into account, etc. So both the supply side, you know, in terms of doctors, scarcity and the demand side in terms of managing or pricing risk was limited. So it became clear to us the only real way to have a sustainable insurance model was to make people healthier. It sounds like an obvious idea, you know, and so... Can we just stop on that for a second? Because it is so interesting. I mean, you're a health insurance company, but you couldn't play the games that other health insurance companies play to make money. And so you had to actually focus on people's health. Who would have thought of it? (laughs) Well, you know, I I think to say with some respect, I think the actuarial and kind of clinical mindset in those days was that things were pre-existing and not changeable. So the data around understanding lifestyle choices and, you know, behavioral science was only just starting out with Daniel Kahneman, et cetera, et cetera. So those things were not yet known. So it was a hunch. And we had this, this simple idea of could we just kind of incentivize people to do healthy things? We had no idea what the data would be, what correlation would, would the stuff be causal? Is it correlating? You know, all this fancy stuff. The truth is just kind of an entrepreneur's hunch of a team of us that started out of could we incentivize better health? And we came up with this simple name, Vitality, you know, that we would give you Vitality points for doing healthy things. And the points were like a proxy for how much you're managing. It was like an air miles program, and that would give you a status. And that became kind of a pivot for, you know, what we charge you in your premiums, what incentives and rewards you got. And that was kind of a, it, for me, it was a lesson or like a moment in time idea, but it took us on the most remarkable journey, you know, because I mean, we plugged into clinical issues, tech issues, behavioral science, understanding why people don't make good decisions about their health and how you overcome that, you know, this concept of four, four, sixty, you know, just four behavioral choices uh, lead to four conditions that drive 60% of deaths, you know, so this uh, kind of existential question, why do people make these bad choices? I'm sorry, review the four for us. Well, the four is eating badly, being physically inactive, uh, smoking and drinking. And that leads to cancer, diabetes, lung and heart disease. And the data, as you go through it, I mean, we've got massive data sets now, it's so compelling. So, you know, we know now that people, you know, suffer from what we call hyperbolic discounting. They, they don't care about the future, they make decisions in the now, you know. So it's you can't get them to think about, well, in 30 years time, you're going to be sick, so don't have that, you know, don't eat that fatty food or go for a run now. The price... You know, healthcare is over-consumed, wellness is under-consumed. It's the price is now and the benefits are 30 years away. So we know that people just don't value the future, you know, and they're overly optimistic. So it's kind of a perfect storm. And, and the world is framed that way today. I think 5% of healthcare spend is on prevention and wellness. 95% is on curative care. You know, so the whole system is kind of skewed. But to build on Alan's point in thinking back at those days, this was really a revolutionary idea, even in a place that had the kinds of supply and demand um, in, uh, issues that you described, because doctors don't get paid when they don't do anything. So I was curious if you could address that. 
But the thing I'm really also very curious about is the inequity. You know, you mentioned food and healthy food. We struggle with this in the all across the developed world. There's all kinds of people who simply don't have access to healthy food. How do they have an equitable experience within an incentive-based system? The issue of equity uh, is a critical one. I mean, I think financial incentives for people across the spectrum is a critical issue because people don't have access to healthy food. Our thinking at the time actually was that healthy food is often more expensive. It's often yeah. not easy to live in a healthy way. So if you can give discounts that bring the prices down, you are providing some form of access. The other point to be made, we've seen this around the world, is that if you, financial incentives, you think intuitively work, you know, often as you go down the income scale, because the financial incentives are more meaningful, it's not clear cut, I have to say. I think we had mixed success in that regard. It's not clear cut. You know, as you go down, you often find people just have a basic need for healthcare and aren't really moved by incentives. It's not a simple linear process. But um, the power of incentives has been remarkable. And the incentives in our industry are completely aligned, you know. You know, people are healthier, they make us more profitable, and so we can afford the incentive. There's no dissonance here. It's a fantastic model. And so my question, Adrian, is you started doing this in 1990. You didn't have a lot of data then. You didn't really know if it worked. It's worked very well for you. Why isn't every healthcare insurance company in the world coming to South Africa and saying, show us what you do so we can do more of the same? Well, I think, to be fair, I think it has happened in, in both life and health. In markets outside the U.S., we are in our 30 markets with, you know, insurers like AIA, Ping On uh, in China, generally, John Hancock in the U.S. uses our model. So all, I think, have come onto the, the understanding that incentivizing and guiding people that lifestyle choices is a fundamental piece of risk management. I mean, it's certainly in, in outside the U.S., it is becoming almost such a, a massive, massive issue. So... I would say to you that we, the data now is so compelling. Um, and in our world, certainly in long-term financial services, where you have to price things 20 or 30 years hence, you need data to be able to support this stuff. So, you know, it's, the stuff is really amazing. Really is amazing. there anything that stands in the way of it? Regulatory structures make it hard to get there. Is what, what keeps people from going all in on incentivizing healthy behavior? Um, no, I think interesting, the regulatory process, I think about the U.S., you know, for example, John Hancock is registered, I think, in 50 states across the U.S. Generally, regulators appreciate this is socially good. They also understand that this is not about healthy people. It's about making people healthier. You know, so you, you're clear this is not about discrimination. In fact, our data shows unhealthy people, older people, the change is more dramatic. You know, the effects are even more dramatic. And the one point we've kind of got across is that insurance is about pooling uncontrollable risk. You know, you shouldn't be pooling behaviors that are controllable. I mean, that's wasteful, you know. So to an extent, regulators get that and we haven't had issues at all. Countries like Germany where collecting data is often, there's a history of worry about, you know, collecting private data, et cetera. So there's a lot of stuff moving, a lot of moving parts. Typically, we've had no issue whatsoever. And I think that the, the movement is kind of really developing. But I think there's often, you've got to get the economics right. You've got to have the data because you are taking, you're taking in a sense a bet that the value of the incentives will be more than offset than the, the value of the reduction in claims cost, hospitalization or death. You know, so you need to have the data to be able to take that view. Not simple. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Joe, in today's economy, it's pretty clear that talent is the most important business asset. But the talent can be pretty demanding. And if they want to, they can walk out the door. How does that change the way you lead a corporation? 
This is especially acute for all of us at Deloitte, where our primary asset is our people. And sitting here in an environment where our people have a choice of where they want to work, it places a premium on making certain that we're operating as a responsible enterprise, that our people can visibly see that the organization they work for aligns with their values, and that our organization is leading by example as a responsible enterprise. Our employees certainly feel highly empowered to share their views, and that's a good thing. We want to give them an outlet to be heard in a productive fashion, and we believe we owe it to them to be transparent around the decisions that we're making and to explain the rationale so that they can see how thoughtfully we've considered these very complex issues. That's perfect. Thank you, Joe. Alan, it's a real pleasure. Adrian, it's fascinating listening to you. You you talk a little bit like a psychologist. You made reference to Daniel Kahneman. You talk a little bit like an economist. Uh, certainly, a lot of focus on incentives. But what what? How did you get here? Tell us the Adrian Gore story. What brought you to this? What I have to say is a is a breakthrough in approaching these issues of insurance. I mean, it's an actuarial story, which may sound quite straightforward, but I mean, I'm an actuary by training, so I'm kind of a, you know, trained in statistics and, ma and mathematics. But I must say, growing up, I had a passion about running and physical activity. I enjoyed it. It felt good, you know. But essentially, my mother told me it's bad for you. You know, I'd come home running with a red face. And this is, you know, it's amazing when I think back how little we knew the raw actuarial kind of training is about pre-existing conditions, pricing things in a static way, seeing the world in a very in a calculated way. But to an extent, I went on this journey and started to see that the way humans think is unpredictable, is complex, is, has biases, etc. So I think our business has done well to kind of merge together behavioral science with technology, with clinical stuff. And it's, it's a world of considerable depth. And one thing I've, I've seen, I mean, innovation is infinitely deep. You know what I mean? That you, you don't do one thing and you run out. You know, in our world, every time we take a step, it leads to like more depth. So it's been a journey for me personally. And it's uh, I feel it's kind of, it's, it's all new, you know? Uh, yeah, and I think that journey is continual learning, which is true for so many things and so many people. I mean, you you started with the actuarial skills, but you clearly rejected the notion that you should use those skills to take on the good risks and get rid of the bad risks. Uh, and you started thinking yeah. about it differently. That is a very yeah. good point. And, uh, you know, to Al Alan's point, I mean, think about what was happening in your country at the time. You had the capacity to think about the real complexities of people who were you know, the switch from apartheid to democracy, what that meant, what it meant to really embrace that as a new societal construct. I mean, that's that's pretty special. And to reject the notion that as an insurer, your job is to reject the people who are bad risks. I mean, that's a, yeah. a kind of a morally bankrupt approach to the problem. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, I think that I think it's a good thing the world has progressed to a point where regulators don't allow that. I mean, I, I think a good business is one that, and I believe this deeply, I know it sounds trite, but I believe it deeply, if, if you can do good while being profitable, it's a fantastic thing, you know. And I think in our markets, in health and life insurance, we're completely aligned, as I said, you know, if people are healthier, we're more profitable. So the shared value mindset here, if you can get it to work, is we kind of more competitive and more profitable when people are healthier. So there's an absolutely direct link. And I, I think those old models of kind of excluding basically selection, trying to select our better risks are, you know, are not morally sustainable. I think the world has revolted against them. And I think our history in our country here from apartheid is a very deep revulsion at that kind of stuff. 
So I think, you know, to an extent, these ideas often come out of places where you've got some real complexity in our case apartheid that drove a, a real dynamic against it. So uh, interesting start for us. But um, when you're in it, you don't see the, the trend lines. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They, they look like hunches and they eventually emerge as a business model, I would guess. How have you learned to use technology? I know you had a, a range arrangement with Apple that, that people will trust the technology, that you're collecting the right information and that they're not going to be punished for sneaking a cigarette kind of thing. This is a big issue here in the U.S. People are very skeptical about, you know, technology tracking them in a way that they don't want. How have you learned to manage yeah. that? I think the issue of data collection, and we've actually had very little pushback. I think the issue in the program itself is the concept that what you know whatever we do is for your good there's no downside there's no penalty this is about incentives it's about helping you so in our program uh, you know we're tracking how people are how physically active they are that maybe going to the health club it maybe on an apple watch in terms of physical activity and in fact that data has become more and more granular about kind of vo2 levels and you know, all the stuff that these devices are creating we also collect uh, you know what people eat healthy foods and, and all aspects of nutrition uh, health prevention and screening data that comes out of it. So we have an incredible data set uh, that really helps us understand the health of the individual, the choices they're making. But we use the data for that individual only for good, for incentives. And when we use it in any form of analysis, it's anonymized, it's depersonalized, uh, it's never crosses borders. So it meets all of the, you know, every country now has different kind of data regulations in place. So the data is used in a very, very careful way. And I think, and I believe it to be true, that we are very careful reputation that people trust us. It's only used for good. And so while we are in many countries with often very different and all kinds of legitimate concerns about data, we've never had much issue with the use of data. And, you know, as long as the Vitality Program stays only for good, and that's our commitment, I don't think we'll have an issue with it. Uh, Adrian, you said something earlier that caught my attention talking about that the, there are some people who don't respond to the incentives. There are some people that it's just very hard to get them to take that future focus. And I, we're seeing a kind of a global example of that right now with uh, vaccine hesitancy, vaccine refusal, but it's in other areas as well. What do you do with those people, the people who just don't seem to respond to the nudges? It's a very complex, it's, a, it's an excellent question, a complex question. I, I think you have a distribution of people that respond differently. And I think you have to accept that you're dealing with a population and there will be a tail that don't respond. You know, I think that that's a reality. I don't think you can get everyone uh, right. I think the vaccine is a particularly nasty problem because I think it has all kinds of ideology. I think, you know, the central choice is whether you incent or you regulate, you know, whether you nudge or you use regulation. I think the, you know, mandates for something that is short term and is kind of politically and ideologically charged it's not clear that incentives work alone. I think you do need mandates and regulation in some way. You know, these land all differently in different places. But, you know, incentives take time. They take education. I think they take a, an open mind. I think that the vaccination is not an easy thing. So, uh, sorry, it's not a great answer. But I would say to you that in the main, our ability to shift populations has been good. I think there will be a piece of the distribution of people that will not respond to the incentives. But then it's counterbalanced by people who only respond to incentives and who we've had fraud of people trying to steal our points online. You know what I mean? 
It's like a current, you know, so you get the other extreme. You know what I mean? It's, I just want the points. Yeah. Forget about the health. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, which is kind of mad, but that's what happens, you know. Before we let you go, I wanted to ask you about South Africa. You had raised an issue in you know, the remarks that I had mentioned that I hadn't considered before, that South Africa exists in this strange, harsh binary to the rest of the world. Are you going to make it? Are you not going to make it? You know, what's it, whether it's the political system or the economic system or water scarcity, whatever it is, we're all you're forced into this strange binary. And I was curious, I know that you spend a lot of time, a lot of your personal time supporting entrepreneurs, people, particularly people who are underrepresented in a variety of ways. If you could give us a snapshot of your South Africa and how we should be thinking about it and what you think the future is for the country. Well, I, th I think it's a, an important issue. I think that the country has real, real problems. If you've raised them, I think quite clearly, we have terrible levels of unemployment and poverty and inequality. But I think what's lost often is the remarkable resilience of the country and its people. You know, and I think one of the unfair issues is what you've raised is the framing of this binary nature. Will we or won't we survive? I think it's, it's tragic because it's, it's kind of causal. It kind of retards investment. It creates a perception of risk. The South Africa IC is one with a lot of potential, a lot of challenge. The natural contemporary view that it's in decline. If you look at some of the measures, you know, GDP growth rates or GDP size, it's actually a lot bigger today than it was at the end of apartheid. So, you know, there, there's been a lot of progress in many ways. Uh, no no rose-tinted glasses at all, but there is a remarkable camaraderie amongst the people, despite the apartheid era, good relations between people, uh, between races. I think my role, what I've tried to do, is kind of inject not a sense of naive optimism, but a sense of resilience and a uh, trying to instill confidence in the future and really trying to drive entrepreneurship because, as you know, that's what creates jobs. You know, big businesses destroy jobs. That's entrepreneurs that really create jobs and trying to kind of instill that kind of um, great ethic of, of entrepreneurship. Uh, we've had some great entrepreneurs come out of South Africa. Elon Musk is one of them, you know, as you know. So we really have, I think, have potential, but um, the, the complexities are, are deep and we have to work hard at them. But I, I do think one of the biggest things we have to face is just a reframing to get out of the sense of a binary future, will you or won't you? You know, I think that's, that is problematic and maybe unfair. A quick last question, Adrian, where does discovery go from here? It sounds like you have expanded globally quite a bit. Is that where your growth comes from, bringing these practices to the rest of the world? Or are there other areas of insurance you're going to move into? Or what's your what's your next step? Well, I think what's happened to us is the this behavioral, the shared value behavioral insurance model has really taken off. So we have like 14 big partners around the world. So we're working with them in their markets. And I see that for us as an area of considerable growth. In our own market here, we've we've developed a very powerful digital bank that is based on behavioral science as well. So we are kind of, we've got a very disciplined model around trying to incentivize better behavior, better lifestyle choices, financial choices. So we are kind of growing both, I think, into a few adjacencies um, and at the same time into a number of markets. But I think globally, our Vitality platform, I would guess is one of the biggest globally. And we are trying to really expand that significantly with our partners. And I think as the data comes out, the ability to kind of build on that data, on the learnings from that, is incredible. I think that the, the where we're heading now, which is I think is very exciting, is the ability to predict illness. You know, not just change behavior choices, but in, in the population pool, we can see now from the data and what people are doing, this concept of health span, how long people live in a healthy way, predict what will happen to them and try and then intervene in the right way. And I think again, the social impact of that will be tremendous. And then you, if you bend those mortality or sickness curves down, the value creation is incredible. So we're on, a, I think, a very important journey. I think the next two years will be very important for us as we kind of move globally. 
Well, it's it's great work. You are changing the world. Uh, keep it up. We'll be we'll be watching, and maybe Ellen yep. and I will get over there to South Africa someday. I'm looking soon. forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Love to host you. Love to host you in Cape Town. Enjoy it, Adrian. What a pleasure. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen. Thanks, Ellen. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 